Welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Suzanne Spradley. I'm an attorney with NFP, and I'm normally joined by my colleague, Chase Cannon, who's traveling today uh, to the East Coast ahead of that uh, coming nor'easter. But we are going to change our direction today. We normally discuss topics related to health reform or other issues that, that impact your health plan. Today, we're going to turn our focus to the retirement industry uh, due to a recent Fifth Circuit opinion that came out and impacts that industry. And, and for this reason, we have asked our colleague, Beth Allen, to record an overview of this recent opinion and the primary issues surrounding the fiduciary rule, which is the subject of the opinion. Beth comes to us from her Dallas office. Uh, she is uniquely qualified uh, to discuss this topic because she comes to us from uh, the, she came to NFP after working for the Department of Labor's Enforcement Division for several years. So her day-to-day work was actually working with health and retirement plans to bring them back into compliance. Today's format will be a bit unique. Um, we will, instead of having Q&A as the regular format, Beth will walk through the issue without interruption. And so with that, I will turn it over to Beth. And Beth, we certainly appreciate you uh, taking over the podcast today and walking us through this opinion. I'm glad to be here to discuss the DOL's fiduciary rule and the recent Fifth Circuit case that might have overturned the whole thing. Now, since retirement may be a subject that is new to some of you, you may be wondering what exactly the fiduciary rule is. And to be honest, Even some of you who have worked in retirement for years may have a hard time understanding how the fiduciary rule actually changed things. So before going into the Fifth Circuit's recent decision, I'll discuss the fiduciary rule and what has gone on since it was finalized in April of 2016. Keep in mind, though, that I'll refer to the fiduciary rule as the rule for the remainder of the podcast. When we talk about the fiduciary rule, we're talking about the DOL's conflict of interest rule, which changed the definition of the term fiduciary under ERISA. But before going into more detail on the rule, it's important to point out how the rule changed what ERISA had in place before the rule. As background, ERISA identifies fiduciaries as parties who exercise discretionary control or authority over the plan operations or assets. Plan fiduciaries must meet certain requirements, including duties of prudence, following the plan terms, and diversifying assets. Perhaps the most important fiduciary requirement is for the fiduciary to be loyal to the plan. In fact, ERISA requires fiduciaries to make decisions that are for the exclusive benefit of the plan participants and beneficiaries. When ERISA was enacted over 40 years ago, one way that a party could be deemed a fiduciary was by rendering investment advice for a fee. To clarify when an investment advisor would be considered a fiduciary, DOL regulations issued in 1975 used a five-part test in which the advisor, one, renders advice on the value of securities, two, does so on a regular basis, three, renders that advice pursuant to a mutual agreement, four, gives advice which serves as the primary basis for investment decisions, and five, provides individualized advice. So an investment advisor that gave advice that met those five parts could be deemed a fiduciary by the DOL. However, over years of trying to enforce ERISA's fiduciary standards, the DOL find that 
found that the five-part test seldom allow for investment advisors to be considered fiduciaries. The DOL specifically felt like the original regulations were no longer appropriate in a changing retirement industry that now includes more participant-directed accounts and IRA investments than it does define benefit or pension plans. Essentially, the fiduciary rule was the DOL's attempt at regulating the scores of advisors who play a critical role in guiding plan investments, but aren't actually required to adhere to ERISA's fiduciary standards. So in comes the fiduciary rule, which nullified the five-part test by clarifying the definition of investment advice for a fee. Now, advisors who make certain recommendations on investing and managing securities, whether for a plan or an IRA, could be deemed a fiduciary. In that way, the final rule specifically nullified parts two, three, and four of the original part test. Part two was nullified because investment advisors who give just one recommendation can be deemed fiduciaries, whether they do so on a regular basis or not. Parts three and four were nullified because the advice given no longer has to come under a mutual agreement to provide advice that serves as the primary basis for investment decisions. Instead, the advice just has to be provided through an arrangement and catered towards the advice recipient. As such, any advisor providing advice covered by the new rule becomes subject to ERISA's fiduciary requirements and can be held liable for any breach in fiduciary duty that could result from their advice. In addition to changing the definition of fiduciary to include a larger subset of communications as investment advice, the rule also provided a new prohibited transaction exemption to help advisors comply with the rule. As background, the imposition of the rule meant that certain compensation arrangements would now be restricted if they represented conflicted advice, which is when the advice given affects the compensation received. That conflicted advice would generally violate ERISA's prohibited transaction rules, since it would not be in the best interest of the plan participants and beneficiaries. However, In order for advisors to continue relying upon current compensation and fee arrangements without violating their fiduciary duties, the DOL created the Best Interest Contract Exemption and also amended existing prohibited transaction exemptions that already apply to investment advice. Going forward, I'll just refer to the Best Interest Contract Exemption as the BICE and refer to Prohibited Transaction Exemptions as PTEs. Gotta love those acronyms. Basically, the BICE and the related PTEs allow advisors to comply with the rule if they acknowledge their fiduciary status and adhere to basic standards of impartial conduct. Put plainly, the exemptions allow investment advisors to certify that they will give advice that is in the customer's best interest. Now, this is a good place to take a breather because I just said a whole lot. In fact, the rule that I just tried to summarize in a few minutes accounts for hundreds of pages of the Federal Register when you include the rule, the BICE, and the related PTEs. So as you can imagine, the rule was a lot for the retirement industry to wrap its head around, and even the DOL needed to follow up with several sets of guidance in the form of FAQs and technical corrections to the BICE and related PTEs. So that brings me to my discussion of what happened with the rule leading up to the Fifth Circuit opinion we received last Thursday. 
In the months following the finalization of the rule, there was a lot of movement from industry groups and even congressional members. In April and May of 2016, the Republican-controlled U.S. House of Representatives and Senate both passed resolutions disapproving and nullifying the rule. While President Obama obviously vetoed the joint resolution, that didn't stop congressional members and committees from speaking out against the rule and even hosting hearings on it. Additionally, a number of groups filed suit against the DOL, disputing the DOL's authority to enforce the rule. Interestingly, the case that I will discuss today was the first case to be filed opposing the rule, and it was filed in June 2016. Importantly, though, the 2016 presidential election definitely changed the trajectory of the rule. When President Trump came into office, one of his first actions was to issue a memorandum to the DOL instructing them to analyze the rule and its impact on American investors. He cited a desire to empower Americans to make their own financial decisions and directed the DOL to examine the rule and whether it would adversely affect Americans' ability to receive retirement advice. Although the memorandum did not impose a delay of the rule, the DOL did request a, del a delay shortly thereafter. And in following the federal rulemaking process, the DOL eventually instituted a 60-day delay that pushed the effective date back to June 9, 2017, instead of the original effective date of April 10, 2017. After that, the DOL even went back through the rulemaking process to delay the effective date of the BICE and related PTEs. So ultimately, even the effective date of the exemptions was pushed back to July 1st, 2019. This all brings us to the Fifth Circuit decision we're going to discuss today. As I mentioned earlier, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and other financial services industry groups that joined the Chamber were the first to file a lawsuit against the DOL. In this lawsuit, they alleged that the DOL exceeded their authority in changing the definition of fiduciary and that the rule was going to do major harm to the retirement industry and retirement savers throughout the country. When the district court ruled in favor of the DOL, the plaintiffs appealed to the Fifth Circuit, asking them to vacate the rule. In a 2-1 decision, a panel majority of the Fifth Circuit began by discussing the history of ERISA and the term fiduciary. To make it clear how much of a big deal this rule was, the majority even began by stating that the rule was fundamentally transforming over 50 years of legal practice in the financial services and insurance industries. Ultimately, the majority agreed with the plaintiffs that the DOL was expanding the scope of the regulations in a way that overstepped their authority under ERISA. They basically held that Congress did not intend to render so many advisors fiduciaries under ERISA. Instead, the majority felt that Congress's intent was to recognize fiduciaries in a way similar to common trust law. The idea being that advisors had a trusted and intimate relationship with the investor and didn't just engage in a sales-type transaction. This takes us back to my initial discussion of the original five-part test definition of investment advice for a fee. The court essentially validated the original five-part test and argued that the DOL's departure from it led to a definition of fiduciary that drags in investment professionals, consultants, and advisors who were not advisors that Congress was seeking to regulate.
In other words, the fact that the rule also regulates IRA advisors and even broker-dealers who did not fall under the original definition of fiduciary made it clear to the court that the DOL overstepped its bounds. Another large portion of the majority's reasoning addressed the Chevron Doctrine. The Chevron Doctrine draws upon the U.S. Supreme Court precedents set in Chevron USA versus Natural Resources Defense Council, Inc., The ruling in that case provided a two-part test for determining if a court had to defer to a federal agency in their application of the law. The first part of the test determines whether Congress was clear on the issue in question. If Congress was clear, then the agency must defer to Congress's intent. If Congress was unclear or ambiguous, then the second part of the test is to determine if the agency's interpretation of the statute is reasonable. In considering the Chevron Doctrine, the majority actually assumed that the phrase renders investment advice for a fee could be considered ambiguous. But even with that assumption, the majority found the DOL's reinterpretation of the term fiduciary to be unreasonable, and they discussed the many reasons why. As I discussed before, they felt that Congress didn't intend to regulate IRAs in this manner. The majority also pointed out that the DOL even admitted that the rule would cause some advisors to be swept up under the rule who don't actually have a fiduciary relationship with the investor. Additionally, the majority took issue with the BICE, saying that it created a private right of action where Congress did not give one. For these reasons, in a two-to-one vote, the majority vacated the entire fiduciary rule. Now, That seems like it ties this whole issue up in a neat little bow, except it doesn't. Interestingly enough, earlier last week, the 10th Circuit ruled in favor of the DOL upholding the fiduciary rule in a case that more narrowly centered around the rule's impact on the fixed index annuity industry. This means that there is a circuit split on the overall validity of the rule. So what does all this mean for the rule going forward? Unfortunately, your guess is as good as mine. Thankfully, the DOL is already acknowledging that they will not enforce the rule pending further review. This shows that they believe the Fifth Circuit decision to vacate to apply to the entire country. However, they have not clarified what they will do next. It seems that there are essentially three ways that they could proceed. First, they could choose to do nothing and just allow the rule to become vacated after the requisite time has passed. Even though the Fifth Circuit vacated the rule, their decision won't take effect until the appropriate procedural stays that would allow the government to appeal have been exhausted. While this is something that the DOL could do, it's important to note that many industry leaders and investment advisors have already begun to comply with the rule and the BICE since the rule became effective last June. So even if the DOL does nothing, the rule is still likely to affect retirement investors. Second, the DOL could choose to pull the rule back into the rulemaking process and attempt to amend the rule in a way that addresses the Fifth Circuit's concerns. Doing this could allow them to salvage some portions of the rule and to even work with the SEC to adequately regulate fiduciaries in the ERISA and Registered Investment Advisor space. Third, the DOL could ask for a hearing in front of the entire Fifth Circuit, which is referred to as an en banc hearing. This would allow the full circuit court to review the issue, and the outcome could be different. If the DOL chooses this route, 
the rule could even make its way to the Supreme Court so that it could settle the potential circuit court split between the 10th and 5th circuits. However, this third option is definitely up in the air when you consider that the Trump administration has been committed to pulling the rule back. It's hard to see why they would appeal this ruling when it likely gives them what they want, a vacated fiduciary rule. What will be interesting to watch is how the retirement community at large responds to this ruling. On one hand, the rule has many opponents who have never given up on the idea that the DOL has gone too far in imposing the rule. On the other hand, there are many advisors and entities that have already adjusted to the rule and even spent money to come into compliance with the BICE. Only time will tell which side of the issue is more compelling to the Trump administration. In closing, I think it's important to mention that the ruling likely will not immediately affect the everyday administrative operations of your average retirement plan sponsor. In actuality, those plans are likely provided services by an advisor who might have already considered themselves fiduciaries before the rule. Still, others might be provided investment advice by advisors who have already come into compliance with the rule and the vice. Ultimately, the Fifth Circuit's ruling doesn't immediately change anything for employer plan sponsors. However, much like we've been doing since the DOL began the process of changing the definition of fiduciary around 8 to 10 years ago, compliance professionals like myself will continue to watch what happens and try our best to make sense of it all for you. That concludes this podcast on the fiduciary rule in the recent Fifth Circuit case on the subject. In true podcast fashion, that's a wrap.